Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Or is it alarm, alarm? Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast for all your Second World War podcast needs. Um, James, how are you? Yeah, uh, well, I'm all right. Jim, in a strange way, are you sure your mood? Are you sure your mood isn't directly influenced by your subject matter? I remember when you were when you were writing about the <laughs> yes. band of when you were writing about the band of brothers, the Sherwood Rangers. Although it was horrible, they that you know it was all about how led beautifully by Stanley Christopherson, and in the end they were a family, and that's how they were all looking out for each other, no matter what vagaries came. You know, the vagaries of fate came their way. The bonhomie would get them through, and and you were very like that when you were writing that, and now you're writing about. Italy. I'm under so much much pressure. I I can't get it done. (laughs) (laughs) I know. At the moment, they're 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 in Anzio. They're fighting on the Garriano in the south. You know, 36 division has just all gone tits up. Yeah, but they've still got to do another feint with the one regiment that they haven't used. Yeah, 34th Red Bulls is doing an attack, and the CEF is doing a uh, the French are doing an attack on the top. And and you've got to you've got to describe what they've got to do, how they've got to do it, and where they are. (laughs) <laughs> there's only so many ways you could describe a valley in a mountain we were going to do some questions today weren't we which actually leads me to the first question i wanted to do which is from chris a do you think that the allies sometimes should have listened more to their scientists inventors and visionaries to help win the war quicker what do well, you think jim well i think I, they did i think, I think they, that's exactly they, what they, they did listen to their scientists pre i mean you know, the half of half of churchill's government was full of kind of technocrats and chief scientists and you, know, you think all those big scientists are um oh, charwell and solid and all those people yeah all those guys i mean they're, they're talking about that the whole thing is about is a massive experiment in science i mean i don't really understand what why you would think anything else i don't well i mean the thing I is mean, you think about and, and you know I, I still think about you know when we were talking to roland white about the mosquito raid in yes. copenhagen in in march 1945 and you think of those mosquitoes speeding across at kind of three you know 400 miles an hour at rooftop height and delivering yeah. a kind of precision weapon on a precise yeah. target yeah. and you think my god how far they've come since 1940 and if that's not development of science i don't know what is and then you know ultimately obviously it ends to the atomic bomb which is about the most complex piece of science you could possibly imagine yeah and you think about yes. B twenty nine and pressurized cabins and operating at forty thousand feet and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I, well, I'm not I'm, sure that they could have listened to them any more than they did. Is the shadow of this question that the Germans, you know, the Germans had boffins and tech and all that and and snazzy kit? Is that yeah? But they misused this, it. They misdirected it the whole time. Because after all, you look at what you look at what bomber commander using in the in the way of um, navigational aids and electronic countermeasures by the end of the war. Aircraft are, f- are festooned with um, with all sorts of things, and you know, not just the sort of H two S and the things we know about airborne cigar and and, and all that sort of um, all, all these really weird things, and that they're playing this technological game of cat and mouse. I just, I, 
I don't know. I, I, think, I, mean, I mean, if you look at if you look at Nazi Germany, I, I, you know, I've said it before. By and large, the, the Western Allies, particularly, use their R and D, research and development, and science, and all the rest of it, prioritise it pretty much in the right way. I mean, you know, there's yeah. exceptions and there's things that don't go 100 percent right, and there's sort of pycrete yeah. and and, yeah. and you know, aircraft carriers made out of ice and wood chips. You know, obviously that's yeah. bonkers, and and of course it doesn't come to anything. But yeah. but then you think about the cavity magnetron, you think about developing the mosquito, you think about hundred group. You think about yeah. you think about Mulberry Harbors. You yeah. think about all that, as you say, the radars and and um, navigational aids and technology. You think about armor piercing, discarding sabot ammunition, yeah. now absolutely standard, but yeah. developed by the British in the war. You think about some of the, the huge technological and scientific well, developments by the Americans. Yeah, it's absolutely off the radar. And you think about well, just simple inv- inv- inventions like the, like the landing ship, which is arguably the most important piece of equipment that the Allies developed in the entire war. And and these are just remarkable. And you think how fast that happens between 1939 and 1945 and the differences mm. in those sort of nearly six years. It's absolutely astonishing. And then you think yeah. about the Germans, you think about how they apply their R&D and you think, yeah, okay, they've got some pretty pretty good good weapons, but actually their most effective weapons at the end of the war are the ones that are most simple, like sort of Panzerfaust and Panzerschreck yeah. and stuff. And yeah. then you think about the weapons that really do make a difference, like the V2, you know, completely misdirected, mm. you could argue. You know, have they yes, not learned I mean, the lessons that, the, 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 you know, cities have been laid waste in in Germany and that hasn't brought about a collapse. So why do you think that kind of less amount of ordnance in London, for example, or Rotterdam is going to make any difference there? It's not, it's bonkers. But but if you started applying that into armies, that'd be a completely different kettle of fish, I'd have thought. Well, you, you, um, you fire it at, you fire it at the at the Mulberries and the, the, you immediately cancel right, or, out. Or whatever, but yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. And so they so so that's been misdirected. Then you think about you know incredible inventions like the um, like the, the the engines that developed into the the Type Twenty One U boat, which meant it was a proper submarine rather than a submersible. I.e., it could it could operate faster underwater than it could on the top, and it could mm. stay underwater for hours upon hours on a yeah. t- at a time. That technology was there in 1939, but wasn't developed until you know um, effectively until first operational Type 21 U-boats in April 1945, by which time it's too late. So you see the Germans time and time again, you know, applying the wrong lessons and and not making the most of of their extraordinary scientists. And also, of course, the regime, because of its ideology, driving away some of their very best scientists into the arms of the Allies. You've got to be a Nazi party member. You've got to, you know, you think of von von Braun, the the things that he did in order to make sure that he could get his rockets away, and the things he was prepared to turn a blind eye to, supposedly, or was enthusiastically into, you know, which we which we shall never know actually how he felt about the slave labour use and all that sort of stuff, and his SS membership. You, you had to do all that, whereas I don't. You didn't have to be a member of the Conservative Party or the Labour Party in order to, in order to, you know, work on a cavity magnetron or whatever. I mean, there are. It's interesting because one of the post-war pictures of the, of the British sort of technological effort is there's a couple of boffins who shine through, you know, like R.V. Jones, like Barnes Wallace, people like that. But actually, they're part of an enormous industrial. I mean, they're basically part of the military-industrial complex, to use a, an anachronism. Exists in Britain because Britain, you know, has fought an, enor- the, an enormous First World War. Has a giant Vickers. You think of Vickers Armstrong when you have a thing as big and as technology complex and modern as the Royal Navy. 
cooking along in the 20s and 30s because you have to, because you're running a global empire, you're keeping global shipping going and all that sort of stuff. You know, you have a depth of expertise, depth of scientific innovation that is just part of the country's muscle structure, let alone its muscle memory, right? Yeah. And, and that's what comes, you know, the fact that we know of these star inventors, you think of the people around Barnes Wallace, the people, the staff he would have had, the engineers he could rely on, the planners that, that you, you know, when we talked about the Dams Raid last year, actually how quickly they rustle that up. And basically they're flying with a prototype because they've been told there's no time at all and they need to get it done very, very quickly, the Dams Raid. That isn't, a, that isn't a single boffin. That's a whole infrastructure, a whole culture, in fact, of invention of scientists, inventors and visionaries, isn't it, basically? And also I think there's a, there's an extraordinary ability to kind of think outside the box. Of, you know, Zolly Zuckerman is a, a, a case in point because, you know, he's a zoologist, isn't he? I mean, or whatever Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a, or, yeah, he's or a zoologist. He's not... Yeah, you know, and he ends up kind of doing experiments with bombs. I yeah, mean, he's just, looking at he's just... looking at reproduction before the war. So his thing is his expertise in that is what is able to guide his understanding of injury, bomb injury, and uh, uh, because he's an anatomist and he looks at anatomy and the effect of stuff on anatomy. Joe has popped up on here. Uh, who's our producer and says, did they spend too much time listening to scientists? I mean, one of the really interesting things at Bletchley they wanted to talk about Friday when I was there is that they they are fascinatingly because they've got an, they've got this uh, film about D Day about the intelligence effort around D Day. But the thing in the centre of the film is the lads on the landing craft. That the entire point of all of this scientific effort, or this you know this boffining that's going on at Bletchley, and Bletchley really actually it's more like a battery farm than anything else, isn't it? It's a right. it's a it's mass production. It's it's yeah. of of code breaking. The point of it all is to make the life easier of the fellas on the landing craft. That you know that you can anticipate what the enemy's going to do, and it's a steel not flesh application. Let, let's uh, let's let's do another one. Um, I love the Mighty Eighth series, uh, says Michael. And thanks very much for thanks very much for listening to that and enjoying it. What was the Luftwaffe of pilots' view of the B seventeen? Did they see them as easy pickings or an opponent not to be underestimated? Even if they're kind of flying slow and, and easy to you know comparatively easy to pick on, they're still each producing thirteen times fifty caliber machine guns, which are all firing at you. So yeah, you know, no, they're they're pretty circumspect and. Um, you know, flying head on to a yeah. B-17 and B-17 formation requires unbelievable bravery and, and pilot skill to do it effectively. Yeah. Um, so uh, this was Galland, General Galland, who was the uh, General de Flieger. He was a kind of fighter commander. And his tactics were to, which he which he worked out himself in the summer of 1943, were to fly head on um, at a shallow angle and then skim over the top of it, still firing. And, and, and that was the best way to do it but it's it's not easy and the number of planes that were shot down not just by by american fighter planes but but also by bombers was was huge um and that's because was, of course is, is they were they had lots and lots and lots of them and they weren't very well trained but 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 yeah, yeah you know as a fighter pilot you that amount well, of lead flying around the air you've got to be very careful and he figures it in terms of because because on the earlier um because the, because I think the the b17 in people's minds very often is the, you know is the, the silver one with the chin turret that there was a re remote control chin turret. They, the, the early marks didn't have that, did they? And they had one thirty cal. No. It was a thirty cal on the front of the aircraft, and right. so it was the most weakly defended point of the plane. Galan just Galan's just thinking. Well, you know, we, we, we've got to we've got to try and reduce. Uh, and also, the it's the best way to get the pilot. And if you get the pilot, yeah, 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 yeah that, that as well. Yeah, you've got to try and improve the odds. And so don't don't fly at the bit with all the machine guns. You know, fly at the bit with the least machine guns on it. Uh, all, very, think, uh, all very well, isn't it? <laughs> it uh, no, it's, I mean, you know, a formation of B-17s all firing at you is is fraught with problems. And 
was incredibly costly. It's just they had lots of them. The other thing, of course, is, is that all the problems that the, the fortresses had taking off into fog and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, these were all the same problems that the that the Luftwaffe are having. You know, you take off in a, on a in a in a frisky ME one hundred and nine with its narrow undercarriage and immense torque and very high wing loading. And you're not quite up to up to up to par, and and number of accidents and yeah. collisions and all the rest of it was absolutely legion. I mean, fifty percent of their losses by this stage, by, by yeah. kind of I say, mean, 1944. Mackie Steinoff, Mackie Steinoff writes about it, doesn't he? They call them mm. Boeings, don't they? Yeah, and, he's Boeings, uh, yeah. Uh, and in his uh, Messerschmitts over Sicily, you know, he says, um, you know, they're told. That they get a visit, don't they? They get a visit from mum, who goes right. This you listen, you lot. Listen, you lot. We figured out. We figured it out back in the in the in the fatherland. This is what you need to do. You need to fly right at them, uh, straight at them. And basically, Steinoff's going. You know, this is this is ridiculous. You know, um, no no thanks. We're not going to do that. But they do it. He does it, and it's you know, the, 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 there's there's. Uh, there's nothing but there's nothing but terror in it, you know, the, the way he describes it. And this is um no, and and, and also the, the the individual squadrons of Staffelm are yeah. are also suffering really really badly. So a squadron of of fighter pilot American fighter pilots would be like forty five strong, something like that, to get sixteen yeah. airborne. Well, Staffel is twelve. Yeah. to get 12 airborne and very often you never had very rarely would you have full 12 available on any given morning so usually it's kind of eight seven six yeah. nine that kind of thing and so the losses are much more keenly felt because even more so than a than than cruising a bomber station because you're such a tight unit of such a small number of men so the flow of personnel is just absolutely enormous every time they're going out they're losing someone in the same way as as the mighty eight far um they're losing crews but as a proportion of their whole, it's greater. They are losing 15 to 20% every time they go out, whereas that's exceptionally bad for the 98th. And it's all relative, of course, because the numbers are much greater with the amount of crews on a, on a, you know, in the 8th in Air Force. But it's a horror story. So, yes, they thought of, they, they, how do they think of them? They thought of them as lethal bits of kit that you need to shoot down as many as possible, but be very, very wary of. But the whole thing was a night. But the whole thing's a nightmare. <laughs> Relentless. The whole thing's nightmare. a nightmare. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, when you're on the receiving end of something, you think all oh, the your your enemy always holds the aces. Um. But that. But it cuts both ways. I think that's the point. I mean, we need we need to go to break now, Jim. Although this is a part. There's a pile of. Uh, questions stimulated by our mighty eighth season, I think it's fair to say, including the perennial mosquito question. Anyway, um, uh, we will see you after this uh, break. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, where Jim and I are doing what we can manfully to answer your questions, though I think... Um, we have question, answered a few. We have answered a few. I mean, there's a lot There's a lot more questions on this piece of paper, on, on this page, than um, than we have answered, but we're, we're having a go. Do you remember yeah. that live cast where we tried to sort of try to answer 20 questions in an hour and completely failed? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was absolutely oh, hopeless, wasn't it? Oh, we were going to go, th- right, okay, stopwatch, no more than two minutes per question. We should try that again, I think, at some point. Um, at uh, some right. point. So Jason Hoffman asks, after listening to the Mighty Eighth series, I still have a thought, why did the US Army Air Force stick with the 10 crew B-17 when the Mosquito could carry the same bomb load to Berlin but only risk a crew of two? I'll, I'll give a simple answer, which is that these things are often chauvinistic. The Mosquito isn't an American invention, so they're not going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that only that only holds to a certain point. I think it's it's not just so easy to just in the middle of a war kind of change your entire strategy, yeah, um, and production schedules and all the rest of it. You know, there's all lots of factors. So when you're when you're creating a new aircraft, you gotta you've got to you've got to create it, then you've got to build it, then you've got to set up the factories, then you've got to have first of all you've got to have the machine tools to create those specific aircraft. That's an incredibly complicated bit. So the the, the machinery that is designed to to, to, to create yeah. that particular thing. And then you've got to duplicate those. Then you've got to put them out in the factory. So mid-war, when you're in the middle of something, that's actually quite a process. Yeah. And, and also, let's face it, and also in the summer of 1943, United States Army Air Force thought that the B-17 was going to cut it. Yeah, yeah. Then it became clear that it wasn't going to cut it. Then by the middle of 1944, a little bit longer, so, so if they were going to change it, the, the time to change it would have been the second half of 1943. Yeah. But how long is it going to take to change it? Realistically, they wouldn't have enough mosquitoes to be able to change over. You could start changing over a few squadrons maybe yeah. early on in, in 44. But, but basically, you're talking about a kind of a year in which to change it. Yeah. So a year from the end of 1943 is to the end of 1944, by which time the B-17 is doing just fine. Well, and also... And there's lots of them. Also, your int- entire training scheme is about uh, is about 10-man air crews. You've got to completely rejig your... 10-man aircrew thing haven't you um, yes you and i think also the other thing is with the other eight lads because you know that you know that they aren't all pilot material because that's part of the sifting that's gone on so what, what do you do what do you do with those other boys and i mean the other the other thing here is the other thing here is american industry's great advice you know that aside that the idea that changing that thing mid-flow is really difficult that aside american industry's great advantage here unlike the germans who are under constant pressure from from aerial bombing and from the you know allied strategic bombing campaign the american in you can set up a factory that will just produce something for the war with the modifications as you want as you go without ever having to change it if you don't want to 
you know, you get the you get the feedback from the customer, as it were, that the things need to be altered and you need a chin turret or whatever, which is the B17G. But you don't need. Why would you interfere with that advantage, which is what you've got? You've got here always. No, the other the other thing here to remember is no one knows when. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this more and more and more recently. No one knows when the war's going to end, so no one knows. You know the the the, the, relent, the relentless pressure on the bom- bomber offensive is to get it done, get the war over with, finish the war, finish the war as quickly as possible. And if you if you interrupt your production schedule by changing to a different bomber altogether, that will slow the war down from that point of view, right? Won't it? That will mean you're not going to finish the war as soon as possible. Because because Tammy Davis Biddle writes really well about this. This this how do you end up? You go from pickle barrel bombing, which is the, the the conviction of the of the um US Army Air Force at the start of the war, to little boy. And you go that distance in four years, don't you? From America entering the war to the to the dropping the atomic bomb. How on earth do you get from there to there? Well, it's you're trying to end the war as quickly as possible. All the all the pressure that that manifests itself, you know, why does Acre change his mind? Why do people change their mind about as they as they proceed through the war, why do the thinkers in the American Air Force change their mind? Because in the end, they're trying to get the war over with. They're trying to finish the war as soon as possible. I've literally just written that line this morning in the in the casino book. Really, the reason they're doing all this, there's a reason why they're hammering away at the at the Gustav line at casino, is not because it's fun. It's yeah. because they're trying to win the war as quickly as possible. Uh, Egan said it in the in the episode of um, Masters of the Air the other day. He articulates it. He says, "We're trying to get this. Trying to. I, I, we, we need to end this war before more people like that are killed. For more of you die. For more. Yeah. For more of us die. Is the point. When you've got the advantage of a production line that's churning out a bomber that can do two hundred and fifty knots once it's dropped its bombs, and you know, and at altitude, and is heavily defended, and you're wedded to a policy." Let's not forget the unescorted bomber policy is people have made their minds up that it's going to work and they're going to make it work one way or another. You're not going to change your advantages, which is mass production and it's actual mass production. You know, after all, British mass production is artisanal, you know, workshop mass production. So it's even then it's not it's not as streamlined and sufficient. Why would you do that? But that's how you go from pickle barrel bombing to atomic bombing by the end of the war which yeah. couldn't be which couldn't be more different to one another and the impetus for pickle barrel bombings how do we end the war as quickly as possible by by knocking out some very specific targets which will paralyze the german economy the fact we don't know what they are the fact that that won't work when we put that into practice when we get to northwest europe those are those are those are impediments that we will overcome you know, and they end up overcoming mm-hmm. those impediments, area bombing blindly with radar, and then in the end, night bombing Tokyo from very low um, altitude to firebomb the, the the Japanese into surrender. You know, the, the, because they're mm. trying to get it finished, desperate yep. to end the war as soon as possible. And I think that in the end is why you don't switch to two man crew mosquito. Well, I think there's a, there's another there's two other reasons which I think are actually the kind of as important as the kind of shifting production lights. The first one is. Actually, I don't think the Mosquito would have been suitable in the role as daylight precision, inverted yeah. commas, bomber. That, that, daylight that, changes everything. You, but, because you still need to be at kind of 18,000 feet, and at 18,000 feet rather than 35,000 feet, Mosquito is as vulnerable as, <laughs> as anything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a bit smaller of a target, I suppose, but you know, it's made of wood and all the rest of it, and it's only got two engines, not four, and 
it's got no protection. <laughs> you know, it has got yeah. protection, but not very much. Um, and I'm not sure. I, mean, I suppose you could have used it as a fighter, but a fighter, a fighter of, of a mosquito's caliber against a 109 or a Fokker Wolf 190, you know, I think that that's yeah. problematic. I, I don't, you know, it's it's not designed to be a daylight precision bomber, really. Um, it's supposed to be a low level bomber or operating at night. And I think the main reason, though, of course, is that the Americans are developing a second generation bomber, which is even better than anything that's come before, which is the B 29. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the route they've gone down. You know, they've yeah. made that call. So they're not going to suddenly go, oh, having invested, uh, turned the, the B 29 into the most expensive um, armaments project ever in the history of the United States up to yeah. that point. Uh, and yeah. that includes the, the atomic bomb. Um, to then shift tack and go, actually, should we scrap it and just go for the Mosquito instead? It just ain't going to happen. Yeah. And yeah, frankly, yeah. the B-29, with its pressurized cabin, you know, greater payload, huge amounts of armament, blah, 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 is a much better bet for what the Americans are trying to do globally than the Mosquito. Well, but even then, they abandoned it, um, the, the style of bombing it's been designed for because the stratosphere over Japan is... You know, it's too difficult for them to deal with. They end up. Yeah, but it's incredibly effective operating at 18,000 feet, isn't it? Or at 10,000 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, but even more effective when they. When they come in at night, not at daylight. But can you imagine if five hundred B twenty nines had been starting to sweep over Europe? What would have yeah. what Germany would have looked like at the end of the war? There'd have been more rubble being bombed. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the, well, there you the, are. That's my point. Right? Exactly, but I think that's why is you know they've gone yeah. down that that particular route. Uh, Philip asks the question. Recently, James did his cockleshell heroes paddle. Yes, he did. And uh, <laughs> well, it wasn't and, cockleshell heroes. I did. It was. It was just. A paddle. It was a paddle, exactly. But I didn't. I didn't go down the Gironde. No, they didn't go down the Gironde. No. But I did experience no. similar circuits, similar conditions <laughs> to, to the mouth of the Gironde. <laughs> I wouldn't um, recommend um, doing it doing it in daylight, let alone night <laughs> in um, December. Uh, uh, Philip says, in talking about it, we mentioned someone else who recreated a similar feat in Norway as well, which was on foot. Um, was that um, Ray Mears doing the doing the telemark escape? I think he did. Didn't no, he? it's Operation Muscatoon. Muscatoon was 11th to the 21st of September 1942. It's a raid on the Glomfjord power plant at the end of the Glomfjord, which is quite a long yeah. way up in, in Norway. Um, it's number two commando um, plus some Norwegian special forces um, who are part of the are part of SOE Special Operations Executive, yeah. and they go they get there by submarine um but they have to go they have to paddle up the up the, the submarine can only go so far because of torpedo nets and whatever yeah so they then they then they get in their clepper boats and they, they they paddle and then they cross over to the next valley into the glomfjord yeah. blow the thing up cross back again there's all sorts of close shaves and hairy moments and all the rest of it and get away again it's great it's a really good story. So, so Philip asks, I wonder what your top 10 or top five feats of physical endurance and partial insanity of the war that you know of. Okay. Um, I can think of quite a few. Well, I'd say the first Chinda expedition. I mean, yeah, the, I would the, say the, the second Chinda expedition because my old, <laughs> my village, my village GP kept a diary. He was, a, he was in, he was a DMO on one of the, one of the brigades. And just to get from where they were landed to getting to position behind the road, they had to walk like 120 miles through jungle. And something like two thirds of them kind of fell by the wayside due to dengue dengue fever and well, every, jaundice and, and, and hepatitis and, yeah. and snake bites and chiggers and everything yeah 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 everything that's kind of because after that um um ben wilbond and i and saul and bob gallimore we've all been saying <laughs> oh what are we going to do next what are we going to do next the easiest one would be to cross the pyrenees <laughs> 
or actually do the X-fill from, um, from Bordeaux down to the Pyrenees. But then the other one, obviously, it's just any, literally any long-range desert group operation in the Western, Western Desert. I, I mean, I have been into the Western. I've been quite deep into the Western Desert, and I can tell you it's, it's absolutely not for the faint-hearted. That's because if anything place. goes wrong, you are stuffed. Yeah. <laughs> you really, really are in big trouble. You yeah. know, it's very, very huge, and there's nothing in it apart from desert, and it is spectacularly hot by night and of course much of the year spectacularly cold by by by, by night and yeah boiling hot by yeah. day so you know it is a, it is that's that's testing um <laughs> <laughs> the heroes of telemark that's that's pretty testing not least because yep. they spent most of the winter in a hut <laughs> on a glacier um, yep. before they wrote because couldn't they land at something like october and then i think the actual rate took place in february or something like that yeah following yep. february trying to recreate that that's that's quite hot. I'd have thought well, any of the death marches at the end of the war coming yeah. from, from Poland through to yeah. Germany, the Bataan death march, I, that's not much fun. Um, Anthony Dean Drummond <laughs> hiding in a cupboard for 11 days after the Battle of Arnhem. I've got to go with that. that yeah, that's that's quite hardcore. <laughs> all, I mean, all, he had just, water, all he had was his water bottle. And then I think you can take, you know, I mean, literally take a pin and to sort of go blindfold and, and plonk it on literally any escape from a, in a dinghy in the middle of the Atlantic in the winter yeah. uh, after your ship's been sunk. Right. Well, any of the, any of the, any of those crews who sit in a dinghy for two weeks, <laughs> three weeks. <laughs> I, just, I mean, you're talking about endurance yeah. and what people went through and what people well, suffered. That, it's just, there's just a glide, that, that, glider, that glider crew who were shot down taking their glider to North Africa who are in the water for 11 yes. days. Yes, in the yes. Bay of Biscay, picked up, go back, getting another glider, fly to North Africa. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the, again, uh, with so I'm many gonna... of these, with so many of these things, it's the people who, you know, enduring that's one thing. It's then going, yeah, all right, I'll go again. Like, what on earth's going on? The people who go, it, and you know, get, again, I think um, I, I watched the uh, Munster um, episode of Master of the Air, episode five last night. And the thing they're really getting right in that. Man, you know, that was people, good. That's my favourite episode people so have far. Got, and people have got all sorts of funny ideas about the you know, character development and things, uh, um, uh, that sort of thing. They keep talking about this. I, mean, I don't, know, don't know really what, you know, the point is that people just, people appear on the station and then they die, you know, and they're gone. And, you know, that's the, that's the yeah. experience of the men. But, but I the thought thing, that was an amazing episode. I think the thing it really, really. Didn't you? Oh, oh God, it's just horrendous. Um, the thing it really, really captures is that you've got to get back in the plane tomorrow. You've got to go. And you know what your likely fate is. I thought I thought it was absolutely yeah. amazing. And and um, I thought it was absolutely amazing. I thought it was the best one by 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 some distance. Yeah, actually. and the dog I, fighting I, I in the absolutely the, stunning. The dog fighting in the fortress. Fighting in the B seventeen. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. But also I thought the the actor that played Rosie Rosenthal did it brilliantly, that sense of dawning realization and when they realized they're the only one left i just thought that was absolutely stunning that moment it, they, yeah. they just did it so well sort of mixture of of horror total bewilderment everything i mean i just just yeah absolutely incredible william sharder i was just watching the umpteenth time a bridge too far i was curious why the allies did not use tactical air support in the fight at the bridge at arnhem well i can answer that Connor. second tactical air force were um uh Ran a, ran a proper CAS close air support um, campaign uh, with 30 Corps. And the reason they, and they did, they, they ran a fully integrated turn up and attack cab rank with 30 Corps. And that was because 30 Corps were 
an integrated part of Second Army Group and therefore attack, uh, you know, two TAF was how that all worked. That was, it was what they'd been doing all summer um, since, since the, you know, really since, you know, things shook down with the, with the close air support just after D-Day when they stopped putting the airfields in, in the, in the um, lodgement and all that, right? So 30 Corps have their CAS, their close air support down with Second Tactical Air Force. First Airborne Division, do not, because First Airborne Division are first Allied Airborne Army, well, strictly speaking, are at arm's length from the rest of the army in the way they train, in their integrated um, communications and all that sort of stuff. Just because they are, because they're not part of Second Army Group, they're part of First Allied Airborne Army, and Mary Cunningham goes to the, he goes to one Market Garden planning meeting. Um, on the 16th of September, so the day before it goes up, right? So two TAF are not part of First Allied Airborne Army's um, close air support planning at all. They're not integrated into the planning at all. And the and that's just because it's all too last minute and it's too quick. And it's they too just, last minute. It's too and it's too quick. And but it's also it just the way that the airborne thing has been set up. It's not part of the rest of. So it's not Mary Cunningham's fault. It's not Cunningham's fault. No, but 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 what's interesting is he isn't going right. What have you got for me? He isn't. He they aren't including him. He isn't chasing up on it. Now I think a big part of this is there is an expectation that these operations will be cancelled. You know, all oh, right, I've got to go to another bloody first Allied Airborne Army planning. I've got thing, better things to do. And and yeah. the let weather, me do the stuff that I know is concrete. Exactly, and and um, in fact, he's invited to one meeting. Um, uh, it, it is the truth. So there's a there's a within. Uh, then also, what happens is flak suppression. Right? You'd think flak suppression would be a big priority. There is flak suppression that goes in with the with the um with the first lift, but then weather prevents um uh weather prevents fighter escort on the second lift on the second day on the sunday and also there is a bomb line around where first airborne are expected to be operating but are not operating because after all things have gone wrong so as a result you end up with you end up with no flak suppression for the second lift and the third lift right because because the cas are told to stay away because 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 they might be attacking British troops on the ground. Furthermore, you also have this problem that, you know, Arnhem is a, Arnhem is a, it's, the town itself is a street fight. The town is a street fighting environment. The, the, the um, village, the village is to be, is a, you know, it's street fighting. Picking targets from the sky in that situation is much, much more difficult. And everyone's flying, flying, fighting at close quarters. So not only is there a problem of a bomb line, there's also the problem of picking your targets in, in a built-up area is much, much more difficult than in the open countryside in Normandy where close air support is used to such great effect. So basically, the reason they don't use, they do use it for garden, but for market, it doesn't work so well. The Americans, US 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne, they have their ta- close air support worked out and one of the reasons that the other kicker is that First Airborne, their close air support people are American airborne soldiers who drop with them on day one and their radios don't work. And it's the American radios that fail with the British contingent um, in Arnhem. And they're the radios that are supposed to deliver close air support, right? So there's a, 
There's, but it's basically structurally designed to have the, the, the you know, the close air support worked out. Institutionally, it, it, it isn't there. Their experience doesn't exist because they are not part of how Second Army Group go about their way of war. They're just, you know, they're not, it's not like being, you know, 43rd Wessex Division, who know how to call in air support, who've got it all worked out, who've been doing it for months. They've never done it before, right? So they don't know, so they don't know what the, so the idea that they land on day one and they'll be able to switch on their radios and have their close air support all worked out and running is is fanciful at best, right? And then hampered by the fact that two TAF haven't been involved in the planning, the Second Army Group haven't involved two TAF in the planning properly, and that First Allied Airborne Army, you know, restrict the close air support that they're offered by by putting up a bomb line that means that basically the supply lifts fly into flak because Second Tactical Air Force haven't been allowed to suppress the flak. And you, it's. I think it's the twenty third later in the later in the battle where close air support first starts operating over the Arnhem area, because basically they've worked out how to do it. They've got it up and running in five or six in the five or six days it takes to get a complex system like that up and running when you haven't trained with it. It's it's the fact that. None of these things are in place. That's why they don't use it. I'm going to do, in literally one minute, I'm going to do Philip Kowser's question, okay, which on, is, who writes a company's war diaries and how soon after an action are they written? Are they always accurate? Okay, so generally speaking, Philip, it is the um, intelligence officer. The intelligence officer is usually a subaltern, very often someone who has been in a frontline company and needs a little bit of kind of, you know, time away from the firing line, <laughs> you know, nerves just starting to fray. Not always, but that's a kind of sort of, you know, a mild rule of thumb um uh they they are supposed to be written every day um but they're not because obviously if the battalion is in a in a massive action then it tends to get rid up written up subsequently um does the intelligence officer always or the person who's writing them out always talk to everyone involved and get the figures absolutely accurate no um and they are also making sure that they are preserving the um the integrity of the battalion as well. So quite often a kind of, you know, a, a sheen is put over over events. Um, times are always, in, you know, they're invariably at 0730 rather than 737. Yep. Um, and, and they're approximate. And the assiduousness with which these war diaries are written completely depends on the person who's writing them. They have to be signed off by the Lieutenant Colonel um, Battalion Commander. But, you know, when everyone's busy, they don't really care. Well, sometimes they yeah. do, sometimes they don't. You know, in other words, the, the the degree of accuracy can vary massively. And and in the time that I've been looking at all this stuff, there's been numerous times where I've come up against war diaries um, that literally cannot be true because you know <laughs> other things are happening and they don't all add up. And sometimes you just have to cut a path through multiple diaries. And a classic example of this is when I was doing the Sherwood Ranger stuff. Um, I was looking at all the diary, war diaries of all the various components that were landing on that part of on Jig, Jig yeah. Green, Jig Red, on Gold Beach, on D-Day, and they all were different. Every single one was different, and you just had to kind of work out a path through it, and yeah. it was incredibly complicated. And that's because, of course, they've all got 100 other one better things to do than write up war diary well and 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 they wrote them up hours later so they you know like sometimes days later sometimes yeah. days later yeah yeah, yeah yeah it's i mean it, it you know i'm i'm so it depends i'm i'm sort of you get a practiced eye at these things though yeah i'm sort of trying to wriggle my way through the, the diaries for for arnhem i mean you know what's quite funny what i mean not funny but what's interesting about some of them is how uh, uh some of them will say a quiet night and you think well that's you know, Commander Royal Artillery at the end of one of the days says a quiet night in general. And you think, what? 
what? What are you saying? The, the, the stuff that's going on around you. But 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 that's the but that's interesting that their attitude is that it was a quiet night puts you in a in an idea of their mindset as much as anything else. You know, if you think this is yeah. if you think think things are things are going tickety if if you think things are tickety boo, then you're not. Then maybe they're not looking hard enough and all that sort of stuff. I think they're a, they're a good skeleton. You know, are they a, a, are they an endoskeleton or an exoskeleton? Are they inside the event or are they outside the event? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the question to ask. They're fascinating. I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, you know, they're they're just essential bits of kit. That's the bottom line. um, Very good. Well, anyway, we've got a few there. Well, thanks for those questions. Um, uh, Really, really really excellent questions. Um, uh, Yeah, really good. And we should do some more of that, shouldn't we? I think. Yeah, we should probably. Mm. Now, don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, we have Ways Festival. Um, which is uh, from the 18th of July to the 19th uh, to 21st of July um, uh, at Black Pit Brewery next door to Silverstone. Um, it's a weekend of this kind of stuff. You can hang out with us. You can buy us a pint um, if you if you insist. Um, uh, all your favourite uh, people you can, yep. from the podcast will be uh, there speaking. There'll be uh, tanks. There will be aircraft. There'll be a lot of the people I've been meeting along the way on my tour, which would be rather nice. Um, I think Amber and Jake, who I met in Clacton at the weekend, I look forward to seeing nice. you. Under 16s are free. You can glamp, you can park your car, and you can spend a weekend of war waffle with us. Um, and that's. Uh, what's uh, not to like? Exactly. As the man once said, what's not to like? So hopefully we'll see you there. Um, we have ways.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Cheerio. Cheerio. Cheerio.